Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, co-author of Happy Money, Elizabeth Dunn, joins us to talk about the research she's done on spending and the ways in which spending or not can give us better experiences and increase happiness. She also helps us apply this to our daily lives. Uh, Liz, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So... You know, I came across your work uh, by way of multiple sources. Uh, you know, our former guest, Michael Fishman, actually sent me a copy of your book in the mail. And then uh, again, Danny Ariely, who we had here recently, actually mentioned it. And it was funny because your book was sitting on my desk while he mentioned mentioned it in my conversation with him. And I thought, you know, I really want to uh, have a chat with you. And I thought, you know, the work that you guys do is really interesting. Your book, Happy Money, really kind of resonated with me. So on that note, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your journey, your story, your background, and how that uh, has led you to the work that you're up to in the world today and, and uh, this book? Yeah, so I'm someone who kind of managed to um, avoid having a real job for a very long time. Uh I um, uh, went straight from high school to uh, college and then straight from college to graduate school. Uh, The extent of my experience in the workforce, like pretty much consisted of teaching water skiing lessons at a summer camp. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I earned um, kind of poverty line subsistence income as a PhD student um, in psychology at the University of Virginia. Uh, So I was very familiar with like not having money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And uh, so then I got my first real faculty job at the uh, age of 26. um, And, you know, suddenly found myself making what like most adults would consider kind of a normal grown-up salary Mm -hmm. and I thought oh my gosh I've struck it rich like what do I do with all this money (laughs) you know when you go from like living at the poverty line to actually having a normal income it's kind of shocking Mm -hmm. you know um so so uh of course while I was in graduate school at the University of Virginia and before that working with uh Dan Gilbert at Harvard as an undergraduate I uh had studied happiness So my natural inclination faced with this, like, you know, what to me felt like incredible windfall of money was to think, okay, well, what does the scientific literature on happiness tell me about how I should use this money? And so that's where I really started was I I was very much a personal question, very much what psychologists jokingly call me search, Mm -hmm. uh, where I just wanted to understand, you know, how I should use this money in order to maximize my happiness. Um, so that was really where it all got started. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of stuff here and I, you know, I definitely want to dig into all of it, but I want to go back to, to the beginning of the story. Uh, you know, I love that you brought up, you were one of these people who's avoided, uh, ever having a real job, which actually makes me want to go back even further, uh, to ask you kind of about your childhood, the influences that have led to the path that you're on, uh, and also kind of how a series of sort of not real jobs, uh, things like teaching water skiing have shaped and influenced your perspective uh, on the world. Hmm. Uh, well, um, growing up, I uh, grew up in a family of um, basically professors There are, I know a lot of academics complain that like their family doesn't understand what they do, Mm -hmm. but for me, my family wouldn't understand what I did if I became something other than a professor. Um, so, you know, uh, I kind of came from this family of professors where we'd have, um, you know, long conversations over the dinner table, even when I was pretty young about, you know, how things worked and why people thought the way they did and, um, so forth. So I think I was definitely raised in a way to kind of think critically about problems and want to place them under a scientific lens. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, it, it's funny because I grew up with a professor as a dad, and I think I ended up on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. I guess it can go either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, 
really, again, I think the gist of why I wanted to have you here is this whole idea of happy money. But I'm really, first, I want to start with the idea of happiness. I mean, you mentioned working with Dan Gilbert, you know, and, and I've worked, you know, familiar with some of his work. I'd love for you to talk about some of your research during that period and kind of what you've learned about happiness, what misconceptions we have about it, uh, how we can increase our happiness. You know, we've had the happiness researcher, Sean Acor here, who I'm sure you're familiar with given the work that you've done. And I'd love to hear some of your perspectives on that before we get into this whole idea of the science of smarter spending and what it all means. Well, when I was uh, an undergraduate at Harvard working with uh, Dan Gilbert, I actually um, pitched an idea to him um, because uh, at the time, and actually this is still the case at Harvard, uh, undergraduates are um, at the end of their first year of school are randomly assigned to spend the subsequent three years of school living in one of 12 different dormitories or in like fancy Harvard speak, they're called houses, kind of mm -hmm. like at Hogwarts. Um, and so um, what house you get assigned to is like a really big deal at Harvard. Students care a lot. Um, they kind of obsess over it. A TV station once mistook um, the housing assignment day for some kind of war protest rally mm -hmm. because students were so worked up over it. So it's a really big deal there. So I wanted to look at whether it matters as much for students' happiness as they thought it did, whether the kind of house that people got assigned to really influenced their happiness um, in the powerful way that they expected. Um, so I said to Dan Gilbert, who was my you know, undergraduate thesis advisor at the time, can I do this study? And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, go ahead. He was, gave me his blessing uh, very kindly. And uh, so we ran that study and that was one of my uh, first published papers on uh, happiness ever. And what we found was that um, the physical characteristics of the houses mm -hmm. really didn't end up mattering that much for students' happiness. So um, things like uh, the location of the house, how central it was to the rest of campus, the physical attractiveness of the house, um, these things didn't really matter. And it, it was kind of interesting because um, uh, the houses that you'll always see on the uh, Harvard brochure are like the beautiful ones that were built in a heyday of architecture. But there are others that will never grace the cover of a Harvard brochure um, that are look more like, you know, sort of riot proof barracks um, <laughs> that were built during um, a more unfortunate architectural period. Um, and so students really care about getting assigned to the beautiful houses that they've always seen on the brochures rather than the, you know, military style barracks. Um, and but I wondered whether that would really matter so much for their happiness. And and what I found was indeed what, what actually mattered for their happiness was not these physical features, but rather um, the sort of social aspects of the houses, like uh, getting students were happier in houses that had a really strong sense of community. Uh, students' relationships with their roommates in the houses really mattered. Um, and yet what they got very focused on were these physical features of the houses. Uh, so in a way, that very early study was kind of like the root of my interest in this broader idea that um, we maybe focus on the wrong things when we think about our happiness. You know, that's that's actually really interesting. And it's interesting you're talking about physical environments because, I mean, so many people here are creative people who listen and uh, makes me wonder. I mean, that takes me to a question about how we optimize our own physical environments uh, for more productivity, more happiness and more creativity. I think, I mean, I think there are um, good strategies we can use in optimizing our physical environments, but sometimes I think we focus too much on the physical environment. And what we should really think about is the social environment. Mm -hmm. So for example, being surrounded by other creative people, uh, could be a really good idea, even if it means that, you know, you're not in the most attractive, physically attractive um, uh, setting. So I think the the broad upshot from a lot of happiness work and happiness ends up playing into productivity is that um, the sort of social factors ultimately seem to matter more than the physical environment. You know, that that's actually interesting because I think that it's funny, right? Because we've got the internet, all of a sudden we're all connected. And I remember Seth Godin when we had him say, yes, we're all connected, but we're lonelier than we've ever been. And I see that because, you know, I work from home and, you know, I create everything I do from a room. And But at a certain point, I, I actually couldn't take it anymore. I, I went and joined a co-working space. And even though I'm not there very often, the, the sort of social need uh, of being there gets met. And it's interesting what the internet has actually done to us. Uh, in that sense, because, you know, we we think that this virtual environment uh, is constantly connecting us to people, which it is. And yet 
over and over, I hear all these studies, uh, I hear about these studies of, of depression being tied to excessive internet use and uh, how we are actually getting away from this very basic human need to connect with other people. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Well, that's actually exactly the topic of our lab's current research. So we're currently investigating um, how being connected to other people, places, and things through our smartphones um, affects our interactions with non-virtual people. So people in our actual physical environment, people who are actually there Mm -hmm. and physically present, our interactions with them can be a very important source of happiness. And yet we think that um, by being sort of distracted by um, our potential connections that we can have to others through our smartphones, we may actually miss out on some of the very real benefits that we get from interacting with actual physically present people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we don't have all of our data and yet it's um, kind of still in the hopper. Um, but I think it's a really fascinating question and one that deserves rigorous research. Um, you know, the existing work on it has been uh, largely correlational, just looking at, say, the relationship, like you said, between internet use and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, then it's hard to know uh, which factor is causing which. And mm-hmm. so um, we're doing a lot of experimental research, manipulating the extent to which people use their smartphones in social settings and examining how that shapes um, the uh, interactions that unfold, as well as people's sense of being uh, connected to others and um, their feelings of happiness as well. Hmm. Can you talk specifics about the kinds of experiments and the kinds of questions that you guys are asking, um, the kinds of, you know, sort of things that you're conducting when it comes to human beings and the kinds of environments that you're putting in and, and the variables that are changing? Sure. I can't discuss the results yet sure. because we're still analyzing those data, but um, we uh, are currently um, uh, conducting studies where, for example, we um, ask people on our campus at the University of British Columbia to uh, try to find a building that is unfamiliar to them. Um, and uh, these are everybody who comes in for our study owns a smartphone. And we tell half of them, you know, go ahead and use your smartphone and find this building. We tell other people, go find this building, but you're not allowed to use your smartphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, they go off and try to find this building. Almost everyone succeeds. Um, and then uh, we look at how many people they talk to and how socially connected they end up feeling. And what we think is is that as much as we, you know, are um, inclined to rely on our smartphones in solving everyday tasks like finding an unfamiliar place, um, we may actually face a cost in doing so. Um, and some of our very preliminary results, which you know are not at the level of really public consumption yet, but suggest that that, that might be the case, that in fact um, there may be costs associated with relying on um, machines rather than other people to solve everyday tasks. You know, it, it's interesting that you say that because I think about uh, times when I've traveled where my smartphone is effectively useless and how often, you know, a conversation where we'll ask somebody for directions or you'll see another tourist and say, hey, uh, we're trying to get to this place ends up leading to you spending time with them. One very sort of random example that I remember is I was uh, trying to get to this location in Nicaragua uh, to to go to surf. And we met these other two travelers and they said, we're, we're going in the same direction. Why don't we all share a car together? And of course, we couldn't find our location. And then they ended up seeing the location we were at and they ended up staying with us for two days. Nice. Right. I think when we have um, machines that can solve our problems very successfully, we may end up missing out on some of those uh, really valuable chance encounters that actually Mm -hmm. make a difference for our well-being. So let's talk about this in terms of um, practical application. I mean, obviously, you know, we've done a lot lot of work, uh, you know, around mindfulness that everybody has talked about, unplugging and all of that. But in terms of taking what you're talking, I mean, basically sort of saying, you know, I'm going to let go of my dependency on this device that more or less fuels my life. Uh, How on a day-to-day basis might we apply some of these things outside of just the one example that you've given us? Well, I think that's where, you know, the research that we're currently conducting um, I hope will inform those answers because I really think these answers should be informed by research rather than just sort of speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, but one 
um, possibility um, is that it might be worthwhile to have certain like smartphone free zones. Um, for example, um, uh, I think in particular, I have a two year old son um, and I find it very tempting to um, uh, keep my smartphone in my hand when I am uh, with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can fully engage with him, but at the same time, you know, playing with a toddler can get a little dull. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it can be tempting to reach for it. But again, some other preliminary, very preliminary data that we have suggests that parents may actually miss out on some of the benefits of spending time with their children um, when they're uh, uh, using their smartphones heavily. Um, so I think, you know, we wouldn't want to give up smartphones. Like I'm not one of those people who's, you know, trying to buy a flip phone on Craigslist to avoid the constant connection to the internet, but perhaps, you know, saying, okay, for that one hour when my son first gets home from work, you know, it might be good to have like a smartphone app that funnels out everything but the most urgent notification. So obviously, you know, if my husband calls and says he's going to be late and we should have dinner without him, I want that to get through. But probably almost nothing else really needs to get through to me at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, there's also other, some interesting uh, survey research that suggests people kind of compulsively reach for their smartphones without even necessarily intending to, and certainly more than they themselves realize that they do. And so actually having a smartphone that, like, turns you down, you know, (laughs) no, sorry, you can't use me for that right now. Uh, Or you have to like enter some really long code or something to get to it. Like basically, you know, creating these little self nudges that Uh us from falling into these traps, I think might be helpful. But again, I think we really need to do the research to figure out how exactly to uh, structure them. Yeah, that's, that's actually really interesting. And, you know, there's an article on Medium. Uh, I don't remember who wrote it. I think it was a guy who works at Google Ventures about uh, a dist- how he turned his iPhone into a distraction-free phone for over a year and eliminated all the apps. And, and it was really <laughs> fascinating to see uh, what had happened to his life. And I, I basically followed suit and I thought, wow, this is interesting. I deleted Facebook and Twitter from my phone because, it's, it's like you said, I have this almost impulsive um, reach to the phone. And I said, do I really need to get on Twitter right now? There's nothing that needs my urgent attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I noticed it definitely has calmed my nerves quite a bit to not have any of that there. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, one other thing that, and you know, I probably there's still research that's need to be done, done around this, but you brought up having a child and I've, I've been very curious as I watch my friends who have kids and how much, you know, smartphones are influencing their lives and watching a, a baby at my sister's med school graduation be completely captivated by an iPad so that she wasn't crying that her mom wasn't there. Uh, what is what is the impact on child development of all of this technology and, and, you know, what insights have you guys gathered from any of your research around that? You know, what are the negative consequences that we're seeing from all of this? Yeah, I mean, in our research, we really focus on the adults. We don't, um, we leave it to the developmental psychologists to study the effects on children. And mm-hmm. we are really interested not so much in how much, like, how your phone use affects junior, but how it affects, you know, you as the adult. Um, and so, um, you know, we think in particular that uh, when parents are making um, heavy use of their smartphones while with their children, that this may um, make them sort of less mindful, like less inclined to notice the interesting little things that they're children are doing. Um, So sometimes picking up on the fact that, oh, you know, he was able to stack six blocks today, whereas he's never actually never been able to stack more than two. Um, You know, that's the kind of thing, if you're paying attention, you might notice it might be kind of rewarding. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're distracted by your smartphone, then you may just miss it entirely. And in doing so, kind of um, uh, miss out on the benefit. And so that's the kind of um, uh, lens that we're studying this question with. Hmm. Really, really interesting. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and let's get into the meat of why I wanted to have you here, which is this whole idea of the science of smarter spending. Because, you know, money is something that impacts every one of our lives, whether we have a lot of it, whether we don't have enough of it, whether we have very little. Uh, And I really want to get into this sort of five-step framework that you guys have put in place for increasing happiness with the way we spend our money. Because I looked at it and thought, wow, I mean, it set off a whole world of insights for me. Great. Well, I, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> so let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, I mean, really, what, like I said, I mean, what I saw was a five-step framework for increasing happiness. So I'd love to just really dissect this in, in more detail and tear it apart. 
Sure. So maybe we should just run through the five principles really quick and then we can dig into them a little deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, uh, what we did was to really scour the literature as well as conducting a lot of original experiments ourselves to try to figure out how people could use their money in happier ways. And um, what we came up with were these five principles. So the first one is buy experiences. And the idea here is that people consistently get more happiness from buying experiences like trips or concerts or a nice meal out than from buying material things. And by material things, I mean everything from couches to shoes to handbags to houses. Mm-hmm. Um, the second principle is make it a treat. So, uh, you know, we often think that life would be perfect if we could just have our favorite things all the time. But what we propose is that having our favorite things a little less often can actually turn them back into treats, enhancing our ability to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Now, our third principle uh, is called buy time. And the idea here is that before reaching for your wallet, you should ask yourself, how will this purchase affect the way I spend my time? So if a purchase will help you use your time in happier ways, it's probably a money well spent. Um, many of our purchases don't affect the way we spend our time, and we think that might be a good good chance to uh, put our wallets away. Uh, our fourth principle is pay now, consume later. Um, and uh, so you know, everyone knows that credit cards and modern technology push us to consume right away and pay for it later, and we suggest that to be happy, people should actually do the complete opposite. People should pay up front and delay consumption. Mm-hmm. And our last principle, the one that's perhaps most near and dear to my heart, is um, invest in others. And the idea here is that um, uh, people actually get more happiness from using their uh, money to benefit other people rather than themselves. Hmm. All right. So let, let's go into detail uh, in each and every one of them. So the first uh, principle, buy experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. So I actually, uh, going back to kind of my story, I applied this uh, when I was writing the book. Um, So I wrote each chapter of the book um, in a different place. Um, uh, I'm extremely fortunate that I'm a, a, you know, professor and I can take sabbaticals, um, which we actually talk about in the book as well. Um, And so um, I wrote the book while I was on sabbatical and um, the make it a treat chapter, which really gets into the heart of pleasure. Mm -hmm. I wrote in um, uh, Bali. I spent a month there surfing. I'd go get up really early because it turns out that like Bali is Australia's Mexico and it's Uh incredibly packed with surfers. Um, So uh, I would get up at 5am as soon as the sun was up and go surfing for a couple hours and then come back and write the book. Um, and in doing so, um, I was buying an experience. So, um, that, uh, money we spent, my husband and I spent going to Bali, um, I think was very, very much money well spent in that, you know, we still, um, uh, think about and reflect on that experience. Um, and more broadly, um, uh, just study after study has shown that, um, people derive more lasting pleasure from buying experiences than from buying material things. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> first off, as an avid surfer, totally jealous. Uh... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, somebody who's not been to Bali, I hear nothing but great things about the surf there. Uh, so, you know, one of the, the questions that comes up for me, I, I think, is that when somebody hears a story like that, one of the immediate reactions will be, well, that sounds all well and good, but I can't take a trip or I can't do something uh, like that. So I, I, the question becomes, how do we adopt this concept of buying experiences into our day-to-day lives, uh, regardless of our financial situation? Well, for one thing, it turns out you don't actually have to go all the way to Bali to benefit from the uh, value of buying experiences. The superiority of experiential purchases extends to um, pretty low-cost experiences as well. So even in studies where... um, the researchers have looked at um, experiences that are bought for, you know, uh, a few dollars or maybe $50 um, end up uh, uh, outranking the uh, material purchases of equivalent cost. Mm -hmm. So this, and and in fact, one thing, some brand new research that's just coming out by um, Tom Gilovich and his colleagues has shown that uh, the happiness we derive from experiential purchases is actually less sort of sensitive to price. So basically with material things, you spend more, you'll probably like it more, right? You buy a fancy new MacBook Air or something, it'll probably be better than some low-end model. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a strong link normally between price and satisfaction. What's interesting is that that strong link is um, really reduced when it comes to experiential purchases. So people seem to get almost as much satisfaction from a relatively inexpensive experiential purchase as from a more costly experiential purchase. So actually, if you want to save money, you know, redirecting your happiness dollars toward buying experiences um, may be, uh, you know, more productive than than spending those same small amounts of money on material things. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, because yeah, I think about that all the time. It's like, wow, there's all sorts of small things that we could be doing day to day in our lives. Uh, you know, then and of course you know people on the internet perpetuate this uh, endless sort of mantra of how fantastic their life looks but i think we forget that you know lots of really sort of wonderful day-to-day experiences are right at our fingertips right and i also i mean i sympathize with people's uh, feeling that they can't afford to buy even you know inexpensive experiences sometimes like say going out for dinner mm-hmm. um, but often when i speak to my friends um, who you know feel like oh you know i'd love to go out to dinner with everybody but i'm trying to save money because um, you know we want to buy a house or we want to buy a car um, and what's interesting is that those kinds of traditional purchases like expensive houses and cars turn out not to actually be very good sources of happiness. Um, So one of the most surprising findings I came across in doing the research for my book is that um, consistent with the research I did, you know, in my very first study when I was an undergrad at Harvard, um, newer research suggests that the um, uh, cost of people's house seems to have little bearing on their happiness. 
Um, in addition, renters, uh, uh, or I should say, in addition, homeowners are not any happier than renters, although homeowners are on average 12 pounds heavier. So it's not that there's no differences. Um, but it, uh, home ownership, you know, is the kind of quintessential American dream. And yet, it doesn't actually seem to have much of a payoff in terms of happiness. So one piece of advice I would give to people who feel like, oh, you know, I'd, that sounds great to travel or go out for dinner, but I can barely make my car payments and my home payments. We think about, yeah, okay, you need a place to live. You need some way to get to work. But, you know, could you have um, a less expensive home could you have a less expensive car? Could you take public transit to work? Um, you know, I think some of these traditional sources of happiness that we pour our money into that leave us very little wiggle room in our budgets may not actually be very good investments in our happiness. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go, let's go to the second principle, which is uh, this idea of making it a treat. So the idea here, again, is that um, the kind of human happiness system is really fundamentally attuned to change. We react to new and different things that kind of grab our attention. Um, And that's a good thing for our survival, right? It makes sense as human beings that we should care about things that are new and different, right, in our environment. But it turns out this is really the biggest barrier to lasting happiness. So, you know, um, if you get something... um, new and awesome. Um, like we were just talking about cars. If you buy a fabulous new, um, uh, mini Cooper, uh, you're going to be super into it at first. Um, and it's going to really grab your attention. But the problem is that over time, as you drive it to and from work every day, it's just going to become kind of part of the background. Um, instead, what's going to attract your attention on the drive home is, you know, the fact that there's an unusual level of traffic or that you haven't um, gotten anything for dinner or whatever. So um, these major purchases that um, uh, sort of are omnipresent that we always have access to may cease to deliver much of a benefit in terms of happiness. So what we suggest is that, you know, people might be better off um, thinking about kind of spending money in a way that circumvents this barrier to lasting happiness. And what, what that can mean is actually having things that we like less often. Um, so, for example, um, uh, last summer I became kind of obsessed with these kale and ginger smoothies um, from my local Whole Foods. Um, And they're really yummy, but they're like $7. Um, And at first it was a treat. um, But then I just kind of started getting them all the time. And, you know, obviously kale is good for you, but you can buy kale for much less than, you know, $7 mm-hmm. if you don't insist on having it in smoothie form. Um, and so um, I decided, okay, I need to not have these all the time. I need to have them a little bit less often so that I actually uh, notice them again. So basically the idea here is when we catch ourselves spending money on things that once gave us pleasure, but that we no longer really notice, we should probably take a break from them. And that will save us money while also increasing the kind of happiness boost that we get. Hmm. I love that. There's, that's, that's so interesting. Cause yeah, there, there's so many things that we, you know, we enjoy at first and then we just get to take them for granted after a certain exactly. point. So if, you know, uh, if you're trying to sort of figure out a good way to spend money or save money, um, you know, I think making a list of the things you buy that, you don't absolutely need that you're kind of buying in some way to, you know, for your own pleasure, but that you don't like really look forward to and really notice, you know, those are the first things that I would put on the chopping block. And then I'm not, you know, I'm not a big like, oh, you know, give stuff up forever, you know, live this bare bones, voluntary simplicity lifestyle or anything, but, you know, giving them up temporarily and then having them a little less often can be good both financially and from a happiness perspective. Mm-hmm. So the next, uh, the other piece of this is uh, the third principle is buy time. This is really one of my favorites. So um, what really matters for human happiness is what we're actually doing with the days and minutes of our lives. Um, And I think that makes sense when we stop to think about it. And yet a lot of the things we spend money on have no bearing on the way we spend our time. So for example, um, you know, having had a child recently, I'm very aware of the incredible ways in which you can spend huge amounts of money on your children. Um, so for example, um, there's like these crazy designer high chairs that people buy that are, um, very beautiful. Um, but they don't actually, um, you know, change the way you spend your time at all. Um, in contrast, and actually some of them probably cost you time because they're so fancy that like digging the sweet potato 
bits out of their crevices is probably like going to be, you know, a major way you spend your time once you've bought one of these. But anyway, um, uh, but you know, other purchases do actually have a, an important impact on how we spend our time. So for me, um, my baby was like a terrible sleeper. Um, and so uh, it, it got to the point where I was just like incredibly sleep deprived. And I was basically spending every night from sort of 3am to 6am kind of half awake with this like, you know, irritated child, um, you know, irritated newborn. Um, and so finally what we did was, um, my husband and I hired a night doula, which is like this incredible, incredible service where, um, this woman named Claudia came in to our house for two nights. She stayed up with our, our baby for two whole nights. Um, and she taught him how to sleep. Now, as you can imagine, this is not a an inexpensive service. It was a lot of money, um, but it completely changed the way that I spend my time, spent my time at night. So um, after she came in, I was able to actually spend the time um, from 3am to 6am in bed with my husband sleeping Mm -hmm. while our baby was downstairs. Um, And so, you know, as much as it was a, a, a sort of um, costly expenditure, it had a really powerful impact on the way I spend my time. And so that, for me, is one of the major things that I kind of use now to decide, is a purchase worth it? Will this purchase actually change the way I spend my time mm-hmm. for the better? You know, I'll share a personal story from that, which actually was it was actually very much influenced by your book. Um, I recently bought a bed, and anytime I assemble furniture, there's always parts left over uh, it's just a complete disaster. And I went into to living spaces where I bought the bed and they said for $99, somebody will deliver it and they'll assemble it. And I thought, you know, that's 99 bucks. And if I tried to put this together, I'm going to spend three hours. I'm going to stay up all night. I'll have parts left over. These guys came in and they delivered the bed in 10 minutes. It was set up and I was, I was sleeping in the new bed. Nice. Spending thought, that time sleeping rather than building a bed. That's yeah. a application of the principle. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that was the smartest $99 I've ever spent. I am never going to do something that stupid again in terms of, of trying to assemble furniture. Well, what I think is fascinating is that when we know we could do something ourselves, you know, obviously you're not going to try to build your own car, right. but you know, you could with like enough, like pain and hours build that bed. Um, and so when we know we can do something ourselves, I think there's like this barrier, this kind of mental barrier that people have where they're reluctant to spend money, um, you know, eliminating that experience from their lives. And I think, you know, in our newest research, one thing we're trying to do is figure out where that mental barrier comes from and how we can kind of help people get over it. Yeah, that's, well, again, you know, that that was the first time in my life. I mean, prior to that, I'd always thought, I'm like, I'm not going to spend the $99. I'll just put it together myself. Hmm. And and I think that's the sort of reaction that most people have. I think my colleagues and I think that people under outsource mm -hmm. um, that, you know, um, we're finding in some of our newest work. Again, it's um, uh, still kind of in the hopper, but we're seeing some evidence that people are happier when they um, uh, if they outsource their dreaded tasks. Mm -hmm. And yet people relatively few people do so. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's a, a lot of sort of potential missed opportunity there. And, and particularly as um, services like TaskRabbit um, and others become more readily available, it's now possible, you know, thanks to technology to be to outsource almost anything you don't want to do. <laughs> Definitely. Well, let's talk about this idea of pay now and consume later. Um, let's expand on that and kind of go through some examples and then see how this might apply in our lives. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to to think about the example of a vacation. So um, if you're going to go on a vacation um, somewhere nice this winter, we would suggest that you should pay for it now. Um, By paying for it now, you can kind of rein in your spending. So um, we experience a kind of um, pain that's not unlike physical pain when we have to give up a lot of money. Um, and that's actually can be a good thing because it can help to rein in our spending. Um, so when we pay, when we know like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to pay for this right up front. Um, it can kind of uh, uh, keep us from indulging in that, you know, upgrade to the 
um, master king suite or whatever that's like a little bit beyond our budget. Um, now, uh, what's great though is that by the time you go on that vacation, you're likely to feel as though the vacation is free. So when payment lies in the distant past, people actually feel as though they're not paying for it because um, it just feels kind of irrelevant. In contrast, when you have that payment hanging over you, if you go on a trip now, you know, mm-hmm. take do it for one of those like last minute deals and pop it on your credit card. It's kind of um, hanging over you during the vacation, potentially detracting from your experience. Now, the, the third kind of component you have to consider is what happens in between the time you pay and the time of consumption. So for example, you know, while you're um, uh, waiting to go on that vacation, you have potentially a lot of free pleasure in the form of anticipation. Um, So uh, just knowing that that vacation is upcoming can provide a lot of pleasure. And in fact, some research suggests that the sort of um, peak pleasure that we get from a vacation occurs before it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so just knowing that it's coming seems to provide people um, with a valuable source of pleasure. Yeah, uh, I, I love that. So, I mean, you've used this in the context of an example of a vacation. Can we look at something maybe a, a little less uh, massive in terms of a purchase that we could apply this to? Sure. So um, let's think about... Um, Going out for dinner with your spouse. Mm-hmm. If you sort of plan that ahead of time, you know, and this is where I think I get asked a lot about, well, what about things like Groupons? Yeah. You know, are they good or bad for happiness? And we've never done any specific research on Groupons, but one way in which I think they're they're potentially um, beneficial for happiness is that if you pay for a Groupon now, especially if you have it like linked to your debit card or something, or you buy it now and then six weeks from now you use it, so it's all paid for by the time you use it, um, that can make when you, you know, and people, it's interesting. I mean, people tend to use Groupons for somewhat like indulgent, hedonic kinds of activities. So something like, um, uh, you know, dinner out or a spa day or whatever. So if you, if you've purchased a, a Groupon for like a really nice, you know, say five course dinner and it's only $39 instead of $95 or whatever, by the time you go and enjoy that dinner, you can really um, sort of wallow in the pleasure of it without being so like painfully acutely aware of how much it's costing you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the meantime, you have it to look forward to. So I just bought like this kind of ridiculous Groupon that made my husband groan a little bit. But for this like crazy Southern barbecue dinner, we live in Canada, so I don't. I probably shouldn't be going out for Southern barbecue dinners here. But um, uh, I bought this Groupon and I like have it on my bulletin board. And every time I look at it, I'm kind of excited. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, therefore, even if the dinner ends up being terrible and like I feel horribly sick and I get the meat sweats and whatever, I will have at least had the pleasure of kind of looking forward to it all along Hmm, that's interesting uh yeah i i I really i I love all this because you know so much of what you talk about in this book is just practically applicable it's not sort of just a bunch of research but like i what i loved about it was i was like wow i can apply this to my life on a daily basis and that's our goal i mean we really want people to think about um how they can implement this in their own lives i just uh got an email from a um a reader in New York. She's actually from China. And she told me that uh, she had made a little card for herself with our five principles and put it in her wallet. Mm. uh, So that every time she reaches for her wallet, she's kind of reminded um, of these principles. And, you know, I think it can be a good way to also restrain our spending. So, you know, people look at the cover of our book or whatever and they sometimes think oh yeah well that that must be nice that you have so much money that you don't know what to do with it all and you need principles to help you and in fact you know I think our book is just as much about what not to spend money on and and the idea that you know if um, you're buying something that you think will make you happy and it doesn't fall into any of these five principles, you know, you it might be worth a second look or at least waiting. So again, this pay now consume later principle, um, part of the idea is that um whatever is in the present is particularly psychologically powerful. So like the, you know, new pair of boots um, sitting in front of you at the store is like incredibly psychologically compelling in a way that sort of hypothetical boots or boots that you might get in the future or the things that you could buy instead of the boots, you know, simply aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes just removing ourselves from that kind of um, visceral situation uh, can help us rein in our spending as well. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, let's do this. Let's go into the final principle here. Like I said, I, I love all of this because it's so practically applicable. The, the final one is being in, invest in others. And amazingly enough, that also set off a world of insights that uh, came even from a business perspective that I hadn't thought about before. And this is the principle that really we started with. It comes last in the book, but it was like the first um, area we investigated. And uh, the reason that we started with this originally in our research was that um, we just wanted to think, my collaborators and I wanted to think about um, how people could use their money in happier ways. And so we thought, okay, well, in general, what's good for human happiness? And there's a lot of basic psychological research suggesting that um, people get a lot of joy from providing help to others. And yet, interestingly, uh, research by Kathleen Voss and others has shown that um, just thinking about money focuses people on their own needs and their own concerns. And it actually makes them want to sort of um, avoid doing anything to benefit other people. Uh, And so we thought, okay, well, what if we flip that on its head? What if we gave people money but told them they had to spend it on somebody else? Uh, So we sent our graduate student, Lara Akinen, out on our campus. And she literally walked up to people and handed them money and told them um, either she told some of them to spend it on themselves and she told some of them to spend it on somebody else. And when we called people back at the end of the day, we found that those who had spent the money on somebody else were significantly happier compared to people who we'd told to spend the money on themselves. Hmm. Interesting. So let's talk about how we might apply that in our own lives as well. Right. So I think sometimes, you know, we have this feeling that, um, well, I'll start giving money to charity or start mm-hmm. spending my money on other people once I get more of it. Um, but, you know, for now, I, I just need to look out for me. And yet um, we've, you know, followed up and um, uh, conducted studies around the world now. And what we see is that um, even in places where people are struggling to meet their own basic needs, they still benefit. Um, they still get greater happiness from from uh, spending money on other people rather than themselves. So I think uh, one of the takeaway messages for me is that um, even if you only have a, a little tiny bit of money to give, um, doing that can not only benefit other people, but it can also benefit you in terms of your own happiness. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like there's so many small ways in which you could do that. Uh, you know, I mean, even adding an extra dollar to the tip for somebody at a coffee shop. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, how exactly you do it matters. So we find um, people are most likely to benefit to get a happiness boost from mm-hmm. spending money on other people um, if they do so in a way where they can really see the impact right. that the generosity is having. And if it, um, if they really feel a sense of social connection mm-hmm. uh, with the beneficiary of their generosity. Um, so, you know, sometimes I think like text messaging money to, um, you know, some broad cause like for Ebola or something may not provide a huge happiness benefit as much as when we give in a way that um, feels a little bit more uh, direct or where we can really see uh, or envision mm-hmm. the impact that our generosity is going to have. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I, I, I could see that. There's there's definitely something that is really, really fulfilling when you see somebody as the beneficiary of your generosity or of something that you've received from them in the mail. And I mean, anytime somebody sends me a gift in the mail and I put it on Instagram or Facebook, uh, you know, I endlessly hear from them. And it, it's weird. You'd think that, you know, you wouldn't realize that something like that makes their day so much. Mm, yeah, seeing seeing that something you did made a difference for somebody else is really powerful. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and we'll start wrapping things up here. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, we've talked about these sort of five principles, and yet there are so many people in the world who are miserable when it comes to money. Money is a source of the, everything, you know, that drives them nuts. And in many cases, there are people who have plenty of it. And even if they know all of this, uh, it doesn't change their behavior. It doesn't change their spending patterns they're almost caught in sort of this materialistic, status-driven, vicious cycle of spending. And I'm wondering why you think that is. Well, I think an important property of money is that it's easy to count it. And anything that human beings can count, they tend to focus on. So it's really easy, for example, to compare how much money I make to how much money, um, you know, other people that I graduated college with make. Um, It is not a favorable comparison in my case, Um, but it it can be harder to know about the other aspects of people's lives. Um, And so part of the reason that we can end up focusing on money is just that it's like an easy way to kind of 
compare ourselves to other people. Also, money translates into um, a lot of observable differences. So, you know, it's very noticeable when somebody lives in a big, beautiful house located right across from the beach. Mm -hmm. It may be harder to know, you know, what it's really like to be them, what, what the vibe is when it's just, you know, that they're the, say, a married couple home alone in that beautiful beach house. Um, and so I think, you know, for that reason, we end up kind of perhaps focusing on money a little more than we should. And in some of our research, we find that people actually overestimate the relationship between income and happiness. So people seem to have a somewhat inflated understanding of just how much of an impact money really has on our happiness. Well, uh, Elizabeth, this has been just fascinating and uh, really insightful, as I expected it would be. So uh, I want to close with my final question, which is how we end all our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable in the world today? Wow, that's a hard one. I should have listened to some other interviews. Because mm. that's the answer. Um, what makes something unmistakable? Um I mean, I think something becomes unmistakable when, uh, you know, everybody can experience it. So I think with our principles, we really design them to be workable for everybody. Um, and that was, I think, one of the fundamental challenges of trying to put together this book is we know what the individual studies say, but how can we turn that research into something that's meaningful, something that's unmistakable for everybody? And I think um, uh, what has given me some confidence in these principles is that I think almost everybody is able to find something that really resonates for them. And for me, that's what makes something unmistakable. Awesome. Uh, well, Elizabeth, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights, uh, you know, your story and, and all of these principles from the book with our listeners here at the unmistakable creative. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. And for those of you guys listening, I will link up the book uh, in the show notes. So definitely come and visit the website. Highly, highly recommend this book. And we'll close with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.